Hey, it's Jeff here. After working as an automotive tech for almost 25 years, I can honestly say that finding employment with the right shop has been the difference maker between loving what I do every day or hating my career choice. Let me tell you, I've been there, but I've also had jobs where work didn't really feel like work. I love the challenge of fixing cars. So loving what I do, that's the easy part. Finding a good place to do it in, now that's been the struggle. And that's where my friends at ProMotive knock it out of the park. They're a recruitment company specializing in jobs for our automotive industry. A-techs, B-techs, master techs, service advisors, managers, you name it. They are constantly looking for applicants in automotive to link them with available job postings at only the best vested shops around the country. ProMotive has a team of professional recruiters that can help you with your resume, prep you for the interview process, and negotiate the best pay and benefits package for you. And best of all, it's free to anyone looking to gain employment. Check them out at gopromotive.com slash Jeff. gopromotive.com slash Jeff. Just think, you could be just five minutes away from finding your dream job. We started to see that engine come in with service history, and it was just like it'd be seized up or knocking or whatever, right? We were seeing them up here. I remember the the first one I did was 33,000 kilometers on it. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another exciting, thought-provoking episode of the Jaded Mechanic Podcast. My name's Jeff, and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this journey of reflection and insight into the toils and triumphs of a career in automotive repair. After more than 20 years of skin knuckles and tool debt, I want to share my perspectives and hear other people's thoughts about our industry. So pour yourself a strong coffee or grab a cold Canadian beer and get ready for some great conversation. Good evening. So tonight I'm joined with a really good friend of mine, um, the infamous Brendan Dills from Jarhead Diagnostics. Brendan, how are you feeling? Like I said earlier, man, living the American dream, just <laughs> working to working. So I, I, I feel like that's all I ever do anymore. So. Yeah, you you guys have been busy. <laughs> oh yeah, this past probably. Oh, it's shoot. It's been almost since January because we started working up to go to Visions you know, taking all the jarhead stuff to vision, which started around January. And then it was like, as soon as we came back from vision, I got an offer to move into a much larger facility. And so as soon as we came back from vision, we rolled right into moving. So I feel like it's, it's yeah, been you're a pretty not, hectic year for us. You're not even two weeks into the new facility. I was just looking at pictures of it. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, last Monday was our first official day. So jarhead's been in there for uh, like a month. It was like maybe three weeks after we, signed the lease we went ahead and got jarhead put in because our other building was super small and it was like bursting at the seams so um we put jarhead in this one and it's been going in here ever since um and then the shops the first official day was this past monday and and the name of the shop brandon is for all of us listening small small town automotive technologies nice very cool name good good and then jarhead diagnostics kind of your, uh, I don't want to say a side project, but you build a lot of um, accessories for scan tools, scopes, that kind yeah. of stuff. So, uh, yeah, so Jarhead's actually, it's actually, 
it's actually Jarhead Diagnostics LLC, and then the shop is a DBA under under Jarhead. So Jarhead's like the main, I guess, umbrella company for right now. Okay. And I mean, they they both do really well. So like the the shop's still growing. So we don't, I mean, we don't turn hundreds and hundreds of hours a week or anything like that. Um, but Jarhead definitely holds its own as far as, you know, paying the bills and everything mm-hmm. else, mm-hmm. which Jarhead was, is kind of what got me out of working for somebody else and into my own thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is, and so give us kind of some history. Like do you, were you a gearhead in high school or did it, you know, how did it, how did it, did you grow up in somebody in the industry was related to you like a dad or an uncle or hang out with a bunch of kids that were all into it? No, or? I mean, I had an uncle that did it, but we didn't really do much with him whenever I was younger. My dad did heavy equipment in the Marine Corps. And then I, I just think back to like, whenever I was younger, I was the kid that, I'd get something, I'd always take it apart, figure mm-hmm. out how it worked and and just play with it. And then as I kind of grew up from toys and to bicycles, you know, fixing my own bicycles and then fixing my own four wheelers. And then whenever I got my first car, just playing with that. And so it's kind of been just I guess in me since I was really young and it what, just kind of feathered into car? it. What's that? What was your first car? Uh ninety seven Jeep Wrangler. See, I like that a Jeep guy like myself. That's good. So I've had too many. Oh, I don't, can you have too many though? I mean, it's most of the people, the diehards I know now, they have like a trail rig and then they have like a, a daily, right? So yeah, uh, I've I've had a bunch, and then I I was like, I'm done with Jeeps. I don't want them. And then my wife was like, I've never had a Jeep for myself, so now yeah. we've got her a Jeep, and so. Yeah, I think that's awesome, man. I, I I love the product. I mean, you know my background, right? I worked at the dealer from like 2002 on. So I mean, I uh, and the first shop I mentored or apprenticed at on automotive side, anyway, one of the senior techs he had an old CJ that he'd warmed up and done over with a 350 in it and everything else. And I, I mean, it was more like a garage queen. He hardly ever drove it, and he he never got it really set up right. And, but I mean, it was, it was pretty cool to see. So, you know, and to, for, cause to find a CJ up here in Canada, psh, there's not much of them left, right? They're, they're pretty gone, but it was, uh, once I got into the dealer and started working on them and, and seeing enough of them, I was, I was hooked on the whole, the whole brand. Just love it. So, yeah. yeah so I mean, you, I, uh, they're, they're very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not hardcore. Like I don't, you know, this one I have, I have a 2015 Wrangler. I don't, I don't have it. It's bone stock and it's, uh, you know, I don't wheel it. It's just to put the boat in at the boat lake at the launches and, and fish with that's, you know, I had a, I've had four Cherokees and I had one that had a pretty good lift in it and it was a lot of fun and it was, it was like a thousand dollar Jeep. So, I mean, you didn't care if you crashed into a tree or whatever, cause that's, that's the best wheelers to have is ones that, you know, you don't have a ton of money into. So more more smiles per mile right but yep <laughs> yeah um so after after you kind of got bit by the bug we'll say or really when did you know that it was going to be you were going to make it a career like uh, you said your dad been in the marine corps right you went in the marine corps tell us about that so i mean 
whenever, so for United States military, you have to go into MEPS, which is like kind of the, you, you sign up, you go to MEPS and you take what's called the ASVAP, which is like a placement test to kind of figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are and all that sort of stuff. And, um, I, I qualified to do anything in the Marine Corps entry level. So anything that entry level for the Marine Corps, I qualified for. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I wanted to work on helicopters. Um, that was my thing, but for the Marine Corps, the way that they work is you say, I want this field. So I was like, I want to be aviation repair. And mm-hmm. so I ended up working on the Harriers, which is the, the hovering jet. Oh, and I'm actually, I'm really glad that I did that. I knew a lot of rotor wing people and, and stuff, but I don't know. Once I got to the fleet and I was working on the Harrier, it just, I, I loved it every minute of it. So it's a pretty amazing piece of equipment. eh? Oh yeah. It's by far probably one of the best cast aircraft CAS close air support. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really good at low altitude, just going in and dropping bombs and doing gun runs and stuff. So it was, it was always fun. Just, working on it and just see, being able to see it perform. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, so was it strictly in the, in the core for you? Was it strictly like that particular airplane or did you, did you move to ground ground equipment or no? So in, in the Marine Corps, they, at, at the way the Marine Corps works is they go to what's called an A school and then a C school. So your A school is kind of, they give you the, the broad, what your MOS is going to be. So I worked on ejection seats, canopies, uh, cabin cooling, defog, oxygen sense, oxygen system, and and that sort of stuff. So in A school, they taught us everything on an F-18. Um, and then your C school is whenever you actually go to whatever your designation is going to be. So my designation was a 6282 as my MOS, which was um, an egress mechanic for the Harriers. Most other... Uh, MOSs. So like if I worked on airframes or the power plants or the avionics, I would have the ability if I wanted to, to easily transition to another aircraft. Mm-hmm. But for the egress, because it's, it was such a safety related thing, because if the aircraft fails, your ejection seat has to work. Like that, that was the thing. Your ejection seat has to work. And so they, they didn't let us do like a, it's called a lateral move. They didn't, you didn't really lateral move from one aircraft to another because to do that, you physically have to go all the way back to the beginning and start mm-hmm. your training all back over. Whereas like airframes and that sort of stuff, they could go to another aircraft and do OJT on the job training and kind of get their qualifications. Whereas for a seat mech, we couldn't. So long story short, yeah, I stayed on the Harriers um, for my whole eight years that I was in. So you're, it's the egress system pretty specialized then. Yeah. Right yeah. On. And, uh, and it, it was fun. Um, I, I got my CDQAR QASO. So your CDQAR, um, you start out as a CD, like you start out as a worker and then you can get what's called your CDI as a collateral duty inspector. So that way you can go in and the way, the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. So the way the, the Navy does all of theirs is if somebody works on an aircraft, they can't just sign it off. Like it's done. You have to have an inspector go in and inspect to make sure that the work was performed properly. But then they can only expect inspect up to like a certain level. And then there's like certain items where it's like, 
extremely critical and to be able to inspect the critical, then you have to be a CDQAR. So I got, I went all the way up to CDQAR, which was a uh, collateral duty quality assurance representative. So we were part of like the quality assurance part of the, of our unit. Um, and then QASO was a quality assurance safety observer. So mm-hmm. for the hair, like for what I did, we, we handled explosives all the time from the rocket motors and everything that went into the ejection seats. And to do that, you have to have somebody there to witness you handling them just to make sure it's all safe and everything. So I was the the safety observer. So that way, whenever we were doing ejection seat work, I could actually physically sign off on everything and witness people handling the explosives. A lot of responsibility, man. That's impressive. So very cool. Very cool. Yeah, that's fun. So, uh, how many years did you stay? Stay Eight with years. the Eight years, eh? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, Eight years, three deployments. It was, I had a lot of fun, but then I started realizing what I was like, my job, it, it took a lot from the family. And mm-hmm. so it just, it, it was time, my time to get out type thing. Cause for the Harriers, which now it's kind of transitioning into the joint strike fighter, the JSF F-35, the Harriers were always on a six month rotation for deployments. No matter if we're at peacetime or war, because at all times the Marines got a Marine expeditionary unit, which is out and it's part of part of an ARG. So you got the Naval ships out. Yeah. The Harriers were, were the fixed wing um, part of, of that. And so every six months there was a Harrier unit deploying where there's only at the time there was seven Harrier units and it was every six months on the East Coast and every six months on the West Coast. So it was like a constant deployment schedule. I really enjoyed it, but then I also enjoyed seeing my daughter grow up too. So yeah, I, I chose daughter. Well, I, I mean, I know we're on separate borders, but I, I, I want to thank you for your service. It really, you know, I know you guys hear that. It's my pleasure. And it's, uh, you know, it's important, but I mean, it's, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's so you know, you guys still don't get the recognition you deserve, especially people, you know, they glorify sometimes, you know, the other roles. Right. But I mean, it's you guys that are just as important as they can't do their job without you. So hats off to you, man. Yeah. I mean, no, thank you. And, and I trust me, I'm not one of those ones where I'm going to be like, yeah, I was out there killing people. And I, mm-hmm. I literally just worked on airplanes yeah. and that's, that's just how I, I play it. And, but you know, thank you. It was, it was my pleasure for doing mm-hmm. it. It's, I mean, it was, I, I grew up in it. Like I literally was on a Marine Corps base from the time I was born. So, mm-hmm. so how old were you when you, when you signed up? I signed up whenever I was, well, I signed up whenever I was 17 and then I went to boot camp at 17. So for the Marine Corps, you can do what's called a, uh, the debt program, delayed entry program. And so I depped in the summer between my uh, junior and senior year of high school. And so I was part of the delayed entry program my whole senior year. Um, graduated, uh, walked across the the thing to get my diploma on Saturday. Sunday, I was back at MEPS. Monday, I was in boot camp. So it was just like graduated high school and literally went straight in. Wow. So Good for you, man. Good for you. So... Did you, so is that the bulk of your kind of like to come out of that, I guess, and go to working on cars? Did you, did you transition? Was that pretty smooth transition for you? 
I mean, obviously your fundamentals are strong, right? If you're handling that kind of that equipment and that kind of, you know, it's nothing for you to read a, a schematic or a blueprint, right? Did it, how was that to make that transition? I've heard, you know, other people talk sometimes about like adjusting to, you know, a consumer civilian type scenario, right? Versus, uh, I, for me, it's like I do fleet work, right? So it's like, I don't have a ton of customers, obviously, you know, dealing with day to day, right? It's just, I'm, my boss's fleet is the number one priority. It trumps everything else. So did you find that that was kind of difficult to transition into or? So transitioning from working on Harriers to automotive, we did a lot of schematics in the, in the Marine Corps, like everything had schematics and the way NATOPS, the Naval Aviation, uh, the way NATOPS worked is anytime you were working, you had to have a publication open to that, whatever you're working on. So that way you could constantly reference. So schematics and, and reading service information and stuff. I mean, it was drilled into me for eight years before. So mm-hmm. that stuff was pretty cut and dry going into it. Um, there was a learning curve as far as switching from aviation to automotive but you know i worked on my own stuff the whole time i was in the marine corps so i i had like basic fundamentals but Mm -hmm. i mean i didn't know how to set a lift because we don't use a two-post lift to pick up a harrier so (laughs) um so like like that sort of stuff and and tire machines but then but as far as like just transitioning i i went right into it i started at firestone and they're like we understand you turn wrenches for eight years but we're still going to start you out of general service. So I was, I started out oil changes and tire rotations. Mm-hmm. I did that for maybe a month and a half, two months. Um, and then I went straight from that to a flat rate tech and then right. started turning decent hours. And, and I, I turned pretty good hours, like my entire career. So like if you average the hours turned, I probably averaged 50 to 55 hours a week mm-hmm. for my, my entire career. That includes, you know, slow weeks, but then I had some weeks where I did over a hundred hours in a week. So just, it averaged out to about 50 to 55. Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, it seems there's a lot like we don't have a Firestone per se anymore up here in Canada. Right. So it seems to be the biggest kind of, when I hear people discuss chain stores, right. Um, there's so many people that reference a Firestone and um, what is it? Like we know the horror stories and we hear the horror stories, right? But is there like did you, you must have had a pretty good experience? I had I had a decent one. To be honest with you, I whenever I got whenever I first got out of the Marine Corps, I didn't go right into turning wrenches. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Um and so I took what it's called terminal leave, so they pay you while you're still in, and I had about 60 days of leave saved up. So I took almost a month and a half off, mm-hmm. but I, I mean, I got paid for two months, but I took like a month and a half off. I was like, like, I've been killing myself for eight years. Let's just take some time off. So I took about a month and a half and I was like, all right, I need to start working. So I went to a welding shop and I, I did that for about six months. But then around Christmas, they slowed down and the old saying last hired first fired. Mm-hmm. So I got let go right before Christmas and I went to AutoZone. I was working at AutoZone behind the parts counter for a little bit. And uh, I was just on Indeed looking, and the Firestone was having a 
like a hiring thing where you just go in and, you know, open hiring. So I went in, applied and got the job. I enjoyed it. Like I really enjoyed my coworkers and, and all that sort of stuff. But I also came into it with my background. And yes. so it, it wasn't like I was just some podunk off the street, but Firestones are so big and they need, they're one of the type of companies that they just want a warm body. So mm-hmm. they hire warm bodies. And that's where the, I think the bad rep gets because we had some people that worked with us there that, I mean, I wouldn't even let them rotate my own tires. Like, like I don't even want you to touch my stuff. And yeah. so that, I think that's where the bad rep comes from is just, we need a body in, in our base. So, yeah, they got to mandate, they got to fill it, right? Like they've got to, they've got to have X amount of people on, on the job. And you know, it, it's, it's to their, I, I ultimately think like up here, we our similar thing is Canadian tire. And I think it's to their detriment that the way they're still doing business. Right. But I understand how it is because they walk in every morning to a whole lot of appointments, right? Way more than probably mm-hmm. most shops do. And it's just, you can't tell everybody that like, listen, you know, we, we don't have, they, they don't, they won't accept that, you know, all well, three people phoned in sick, right? They still want their stuff done. Right. So it's, and when you're the biggest player, right, they can, they're the loudest. They can get online and say, Hey, Firestone store, whatever, can up here, Canadian tire store, you know, princess and Gardner did this. And it's just, so they're, they're always, I try not to run those guys down or gals down because you know what it, it is. I mean, a lot of us have gotten our start in stores like that. I mean, you're an example. And I don't like to say that, Oh, well, you know, it's only, this type of mechanic that works there. That's not true. That's not true at all. It's just, there's, you have that reputation overhanging you all the time, right? Like that just kind of looms over. And I want to, I want to work somewhere where I can be proud. I want to say with pride, I work here. And I feel like, you know, if I was to stand around at a party or something and say, Oh, I work for, you know, this store, everybody's going to have a horror story, right? Or everybody's going to hear this. Oh, well, what about that? You know, that's bad enough when you're at some place and you tell people they're a mechanic, right? It's some people still roll their eyes or, oh, they give you that side glance, but you know, you must have been into drugs. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. You curse a lot. You're misogynist. It's, I, yeah, I'm just, you know, we have to, we have to look at what they do good in terms of they give people opportunity. And then if we can eventually see their business practices and morals and culture kind of change, then I think they can really do something positive. So, yeah. So that was, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to ramble on about Firestone, but we're good. No, please do. (laughs) Well, well, so their, their biggest thing is, um, they're very, uh, Hang on, the the terminology just went out of my head. Where they they only care about the dollars coming in, like mm-hmm. so they transactional. There we go. They're they're one hundred percent transactional, and they don't care about. I mean, they care, and they they always looked at you know how much of retention we're getting, yes. but they cared more about I want to get as much as I can out of this person, and and that was kind of one thing that I didn't really care for too much working there it was, was that aspect of it. Don't get me wrong. I turned a lot of hours whenever I was there, but mm-hmm. it was just a lot, a lot of that. And, and so it didn't necessarily align with um, 
my thought process and, and what I've seen in my career. And so I, I stepped away and I went to a dealership from there. Um, then I wound up back there for a little bit in between dealerships, but yeah, it was a lot of it had to do with just that. Did you, I'm not uh, necessarily a transactional based type person. What what brand for dealership? So I left uh, Firestone. I went to Toyota for about a. I was at Toyota for about a year, and then a guy that I was with at Toyota, he left and went to uh, Kia, and mm-hmm. he got me a job at Kia, and so I stayed with Kia for five years like in, in between key and Honda for like five or six years um and then the dealership life just it burned me out because it's 100 percent dog eat dog and just Amen. yep and and so yeah i was that to be honest with you if it wasn't for going to an independent shop like a good one i was getting out of the career like i was getting out of the the industry my wife got tired of me coming home in a bad mood every day and just, it was just every single day. It just, it, I loved what I did, but it was just burning me out. And I almost just gave up everything. We were trying to find something I could do that would replace the money that I was making. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know how that is. It's like you make really good money as a good tech and it's hard to replace it because you got to start back low. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I, you know, people think they hear me and they're like, oh, he runs down the dealer all the time. No, man. I like when I was at the one I was at for the longest term. Yeah, there was there was struggles every day, you know, and there was frustrations. And it was like you had to know your role, which was just like it's dog, it's just like he says, doggy dog. It's not a team, regardless of what anybody says. It is not a team. You are there to produce as much revenue for them as possible. If you know it, if you're over there stepping on your coworker's throat to get the next job, they don't care as long as the job gets done. But I mean, I had lots of weeks where I made really good hours. I, you know, I turned 50, 60. I mean, <laughs> you know, I had turned 28 in one day and that's no carrier. Well, that's a Saturday, right? Like, I mean, that's, will I ever do that again? No, not even close. Like it's just this, everything aligned perfectly. You know, with the, the cars that came in and all the jobs and what was quoted and whatnot, it was, it was, it was amazing. But it's, uh, I mean, I'm glad I did it. It taught me how to be a tech. I learned a lot, you know, and I, I don't want to paint it all as, as all bad, but it's just, you have to be, you have to know what you're, what you are when you're there. Right. You know, I had, I worked a Saturday once made 28 hours in one day. That's no carryover. That's just, I had like 12 cars come in that, uh, you know, needed a, they all had some diag attached to it and then some service and everything lined up perfect. All the parts were in stock, nothing broke coming apart. It was just, it was just perfect. And, um, but I mean, I, I'll know, I know I'll never have another day like that, you know, in my career. And I, I, if the work was there, making 50 was not a problem. You know, I was never, I was never a guy that turned a hundred, you know, I think my best week ever was probably 72, which was still, I was happy to do that. But I mean, I was always a guy that it was like, if I hit 45, you know, that was, that was okay. I mean, I was, I was good with that. I could, I could pay my bills and, and, uh, you know, survive. What drove me nuts is you could make 45 and you'd watch the guy over there do 60, you know, and you'd do 10 of his work, 10 of 10 hours of his next week over again for him. Right. Or, or guys just do, 
you know, the low hanging fruit, right? And you're, if you've got any kind of diag ability, you you tend to be a little struggling with that or you break even at best or whatever. And I mean, let's, you know, yeah. Let's, or you have any certifications at all. Yeah. Usually as soon as you got certifications, that was when it went downhill. Yeah. And that was, that was always the thing that I struggled with because like, same thing when I was in the Marine Corps, I always strived. I wanted all of our certifications that we needed for MOS. I wanted every single one of them. Mm -hmm. So I worked my way to that. Um, I almost got all of them whenever I got out. So, so like whenever I went to Kia, I was like, I, I want to be a master tech. So I worked my way up. I was a master certified. And so I'd not 90% of the time I was dealing with just BS. Now I still turn really good hours just because I was quick at what I was doing and that sort of stuff. But mm -hmm. it just, it, it just, it, like you said, it just wears you out. Yeah. And like mine, towards the end of and the reason I um I left Kia and and wanted to leave dealerships altogether was Kia dropped that engine recall. I don't know if you paid yeah. attention to that where they were doing all the yeah. engines. They it got to the point where I was doing five plus engines a week, if not more. Now they were pretty quick. My best time doing one, I, I did a uh, Kia Optima start to finish, like rolled up to the car to start working, had the new engine running in just over two hours. Jeez. But it's like, it was just because it was repetitive and, and mm -hmm. it was, and that's all we were doing was engines back to back to back to back. And it just kind of got to the point of like, yeah, I, I need to find something else because this sucks. Yeah, I did. I did. I was at, at Hyundai for just about a year and uh, I got out just before as they were coming in. We started to see that engine come in with service history and it was just like it'd be seized up or knocking or whatever right we were seeing them up here i remember the the first one i did was thirty three thousand kilometers on it and it was a year old so thirty three thousand kilometers like twenty thousand miles you know like it was it was low and he had service history and whatnot and we're like what is happening here and then you know after that i was that was not long for that dealership there was other reasons for me leaving it had nothing to do with the the product was easy to fix it was not hard. It was, uh, it was just, it, it just another dealership with a culture that, you know, um, didn't align with what I wanted to do either. Right. Like we had, they had their guys that they were going to feed every day cause they had, you know, five years there and then everyone else, well, too bad about them. Right. Like we've got to look after these five first. Now at Hyundai and the way Canada works, do you still have to like do prior approval? Like, Call, contact tech support and all that stuff where you do engines and all that. So when I was there, I never had to call anybody, right? It was just a situation of I went into the service manager, or the service advisor and said, Hey, you know, this thing's leaking oil from, you know, the psych timing covers used to leak like a sieve, right? And everything else or the, what is that? That sensor in the transmission that'd be bad all the time. The temperature sensor or something yeah, on the that. water. Yep. Yeah. So it was like, we just kind of had to tell them. And then I got out before the engine recall hit, but I can remember that like I did the first one and then I, I had another one that it failed. This is before completes were available and it pumped a bunch of the engine or, or metal through it and they called a short block and I tore it down and there was metal all through the variable valve timing solenoids and the whole thing. I'm like, you should really probably like, you know, send these out and I, oh no, just slap them back on. And it ran for all of, you know, 
10 minutes and then went out jump time again. And I had to do that all over again. And that was, that was, you know, my fault, even though I said to them that like, Hey, this sucker's full of oil, right? Like a short block is not really the best choice. And then I was gone. And then we didn't, so we didn't have, I didn't have to go through the headache of okay. uh, approval. So I was it, at, it, go, go ahead. In the U S it's like that. It, so in the U S anytime we had to do engines, like for, it was, Better on the red side than it was the blue. So red side's Kia, blue side's Hyundai. Um, it was a whole lot easier on the red side because you would just, it was, you'd log in a tech line and then you would just pretty much send an email and the, they would, they might have you do some stupid checks that you already know is going to fail, but you know, and then they would just prove it. Well, on Hyundai, you actually physically had to call in a tech line, talk to the tech line person while they're on the phone and then get all these approvals and stuff. And so that was kind of like the, doing the engines was easy, but you'd spend an hour to two hours trying to jump through all the hoops and all that sort of stuff. Like probably the funniest one that I ever seen is like whenever the recall was like going hard tech line was trying to find any way that they could to see, okay, is the engine actually locked up? Mm -hmm. So then they started having us take videos of us putting a, a wrench on the crank and trying to turn it. And it's like, okay, we'll do that. Well, then it was, oh, you pull the dry belt off and let's verify. I worked with a guy and like, I'm not even lying on this. He got so fed up because he he did three different videos and TechLine just kept adding and adding and adding and adding. So he did a five minute video going from a quarter inch breaker bar to a six foot <laughs> breaker bar, trying to pull the engine and rotate it. And at the very end, he's like, is this a good enough video for you? I like that but, guy. Yeah, so yeah, so we, we had to do a lot of, of, of that sort of stuff. And, and so the engine was easy, but it was all of the, the rat race and red tape and everything just to get them approved. So. And really, is that the tech's job? You know, like, I mean, they say it is, but it, to my opinion, it's that's that gets into an admin realm, right? Like, I mean, you've got a customer that has an obviously broken car. I mean, it got towed in. Right. You, it's you, the starter motors just clicking or just smoking when you try to turn the key, <laughs> like it, quit wasting everybody's time. And just like, you know, the thing is, is not a quality built engine. Just ship a truckload down, put the truck on the back of the lot, put a forklift in it and have the pallets of them ready to go. And let's start, you know, making your customers happy. This yeah, it was when I was my tenure at Nissan, it was starting to get towards that. And I mean, they were talking about how. Because when I was at Nissan, I was on a Facebook group and everybody was talking about in the U.S. how they were starting to do the CVT rebuilds versus just taking one out of a crate and putting it in the car. And, you know, you had to quote it and price it up. And, you know, so everybody immediately just priced them to where it was cost exceeded and you just put a reman unit in, right? But I was even then it was just like... So I've got my screenshot captures of what the, you know, the slip in the in the CVT. Now you want me to like take the thing out, tear it down before you tell me what to do with it? No, that's not. And so that never seemed to get heavy in Canada because, I mean, that's the, I guess the advantage up here is there's so f more, so much more dealerships in the U.S. versus here that we're just a blip on their radar, right? Like we're small. So they just, yeah, like, you know, we're trying to build the brand there and like they sell more Nissan Titans in California than they do in all of Canada. Right. Which is, I mean, and they're, they're a terrible truck, but I mean, so 
I I got I left Nissan before that became a a thing, and we but I we were doing CVTs five a week, you know. Uh, it was they're just trash. So, and that's that always shook me. It was just like so the labor op says it's this to do this. You know, there's no set time when you're going to go in and get authorization or approval to do something. Of how long time the email trail is going to take, how long the phone call is going to take. That's all time that I'm expected to donate. That's that goes against my core, right? I can't, I can't do it. I'm if you're going to treat me like a flat rate monkey, I'm going to learn my labor ops, and I'm what the time is pays is what it gets. You know, it's how it has to yeah, be. That, it's business, and that's like so with Kia and Hyundai now. Originally, they had um, with inspections and everything you were getting like, uh, I don't know, it was like nine hours or nine and a half hours to do a long block. Mm-hmm. And even then people were bitching. I wasn't bitching at nine and a half hours. Cause I was, like I said, two and a half, three hours doing an engine. That's really good money to me. Yeah. But then just how people blab on Facebook and blab and we're doing these engines this quick key and Hyundai started looking at it and they dropped their labor times. And now the guys, on most of the long blocks, they're getting like less than six hours to mm-hmm. do a long block. And that includes all of the testing and everything else that they want you to jump through the hoops on. Yeah. And it's just, it's like, it's not even worth, you know, messing with it anymore at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're just trying to get you to where you break even, right? They don't want you to be making time. They just want you to break even. And then, and I understand both sides of it, but I mean, I still feel like, well, if you guys, your high-paid engineers, determine that it took this long, and little old me that's smart and figured out how to shave time, I should keep that time. You know, that's that's the that's my expertise. Your expertise of determining how the process and the procedure, that's cool. But if if I can get it done faster and the customer leaves with a repaired, you know, car that's still going to hold up the way it's supposed to, you know, then then don't punish me by being efficient. Yeah. We have the time. Yeah. They same thing. The steering couplers in the, the electronic power steering motors for like the Sonatas and stuff. I mean, they were failing constantly and all it was a little piece of rubber. Well, the manual wanted you to pull the whole column out of the vehicle, put it on the workbench, take it all apart. And it paid hour and a half or something like that. And then if you had to do an alignment, they would let you add an alignment onto it. Everybody found out you can do it in the car by just dropping mm-hmm. the column down a little bit, reaching your hand in there, taking the motor off and doing it. Well, so they took an hour and a half, two hour job and they dropped it down to like six or eight tenths because people were doing it in yeah. the in the car. And it's like, how is that my fault? You know, but it, same thing. It comes back to sometimes like I'm one to always try and share my knowledge and try and help mm-hmm. people out. But but in a dealership, it they don't want you to because the moment that you start sharing your knowledge, it gets back to the factory, and then they realize that they can save money at the factory by cutting your time. So yeah, and we we know that they can fix that or have less occurrences of that happening if they allow if they're smarter with what they show as the you know clocked time against the repair, right? But too many times, I think the, the admin side screws it up because they're not catching it. Like oh. You know, Brendan's long block pays nine hours. His punch time on it is 4.3, right? They should be allowing them more the way, you know, we all hear how guys talk about how they ran multiple punch cards, right? Way back when. 
that sh- that mm-hmm. was how, and I see it. You're technically, you know, taking advantage maybe of the OE, but at the same time, the, the tech shouldn't be punished for that, right? Like you should not be punished for your for your proficiency at all. I don't feel like if you're efficient, no, it- you know, good work. The cars are not coming back. You know, where was the incentive to do it faster if you're all of a sudden going to make less money? Yeah, especially like in my opinion on certain stuff was like, so all of the testing, you could spend a day working on a car trying to figure out what's going on with it. And if you don't have a labor op code for whatever, if you replace a part, they just expect you to just eat it. Now, if you have a good service manager, the service manager might pay you some straight time or whatever. So they just expect you to eat it. And that's where like a lot of the stuff of I was making time on it. I just consider that my makeup time for spending mm-hmm. hours on cars and not getting paid for it. Yeah. But, and when that dries up though, right. Cause we're all really look at the end of the week, right. It's not the, when you're flat rate, you're trained not to look day to day, but look week to week and you know, year end is important. Right. But it's hard to get through the grind when you might have three days in a row where it just kills you. You know, you got one problem car after another. Like that's my thing was I got fed, you know, I got fed a fair amount of the drivability electrical in just about every shop I've ever worked at because I'm, I'm not great at it, but I, I got a pretty good set of fundamentals and I, and I get through it in a relatively easy time. And, you know, and it, that was, so when I could do it, they're just like, oh, okay, give it to him. Let him take a shot at it. And yeah, you take pride in fixing it. But you can't you can't eat pride. You can't feed your family with pride. You know that's that's a personal thing. That's not a something that goes into the bank account at the end of the week. Pride is pride's just pride. Yeah, because I I I started making a joke because at one of the dealerships I worked at is like I would usually make no money Monday and Tuesday and then half a Wednesday and then usually at, at the end of Wednesday I pretty much have to tell them to F off on all these cars that aren't paying and give me something to make a paycheck. So usually my paychecks were only the, like the last two and a half days of the week. And if I worked a Saturday last three and a half days of the week, because that first half was usually on average a wash because you would just go in there and it, you'd get fed crappy cars over and over and over again until you tell them I'm not taking another crappy car. We'll start this again next week. Yeah. And then you get labeled a prima donna or, you know, a, a difficult employee like uh, that's that's should be a headline on my resume is you know uh good at fixing cars terrible attitude you know <laughs> like um because it it's you know i, I learned the game early on same as all of us that you know, like if you allow them to treat you that way they will continue to treat them because it's to their advantage you know um they're getting somebody that will take pride and and, and solve the one and you know and that lord knows i did it and i'm not I'm not ashamed. I don't regret doing it, but yeah, you had to have some days where you had to. And that's why I think you see so much of the pushback. The advisors get hammered a lot too. And it's not really their fault, right? Because they're only writing up the work order a lot of the time, but they don't understand. Like if they don't know that you had 10 cars that were all junk. So when they go in there and they try to shave your time or, you know, can you scan this real quick? I can't charge a customer or, you know, throw that light bulb in for, like, you know, well, it's supposed to be point three, but they said, blah, blah. That's why it's those things that suddenly you see that's like you're the last draw and, the, you, you know, your whistle top blows and, and people are having arguments, right? It's because they don't know. And it's, 
do I want to see it all go flat rate go away? Well, it doesn't have to go away, but I think there needs to be more of an understanding about what makes us, uh, so many of us resent it, you know, or have negative, negative relationships with it. And, you know, and they'll say, well, it's, you know, you just need to find, I love that line. You just need to find another shop where they don't treat you like that. If you're really familiar with the product, <laughs> you're going to probably stick with a dealer. And if you jump one dealer, guess what? The management tactics are the same. It might even be the same dealer group. It might even be the same manager you left, right? So, you know, you just have to learn to to roll with it. You know, look at the end of the week, not the end of the day. So, yeah. But. And like talking about advisors, I mean, so I've got a bad shoulder. Um Mm-hmm. injury that happened in the Marine Corps. And, and I've always been the type where I'll work through pain to make the, like, just get to the end of the day. High insights, 2020, I probably shouldn't have been doing that over the past 20 years, but yeah. it's life, whatever. <clears throat> but I went to my service manager. I was like, look, and this is still at a dealer. You know, could I possibly do a service advisor role? Cause I still want to stay in the auto. I just, I need to rest my shoulder for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did that for a day and I was like, F this. Like some of the service ma- or service advisors might make really good money at the dealership, but how you were saying a minute ago, all the stuff that they deal with. Yeah. They usually work longer hours than a technician and they deal with just all of the crap sandwich that just goes in through the dealership. And they're usually the ones that get stomped on the most from sales department to the service manager to the customers. I was like, yeah, I, nah, I ain't doing it. <laughs> I ain't doing that. When we're just being pain for a while. When you were there, were your service advisors, did they make any commission on warranty work or was it just straight retail? So they, all of the ones that I had, they were, uh, they were com- commission based on everything. Mm-hmm. And they, I remember laughing because it comes back to dealers just trying to be shady. Like not all of them are, but a lot of them have a bad rap, especially the owners and and upper management to the employees. So whenever the engine recall first dropped for Kia, the service advisors were making, I think it was like two or 3% on parts. So it doesn't matter if it's a warranty part or whatever they're making on average. I think it was like two or 3%. And then they're making so much percent on labor and yada, yada, yada. Well, whenever the warranty or the recall dropped, we were doing 20 to 30 engines in the shop a week, two weeks, three weeks or whatever. That adds up a lot of money into the service advisor's pockets. Because, you know, an eight or nine thousand dollar engine, three percent times twenty, I mean that's that's a hefty paycheck. And it's that like, went on for like two or three months, and then the owners were like, Oh crap, we're paying them a ton of money. So they went and like took all of their profits out of it completely to where it kind of screwed over the advisors. That's good for the culture, isn't it? Yep. We had two advisors quit almost instantly whenever that happened. Mm-hmm sad man it's it is so many you know it doesn't seem to matter who you talk to where you go there's always similar stories eh? it's just it's it's such a fascinating thing in this industry it does not seem to matter so so tell me like you were there at the dealer for how many years total so 
I bounced around between a few different dealerships. But staying with Kia and Hyundai? Oh, yeah. And um, because we had within 30 to 40 minutes of my house, I had like four different Kia dealers I could choose from and two different Hyundai dealers to, or mm-hmm. three different Hyundai dealers to choose from. But it all came back to culture. So like the way I was raised growing up and then being in the Marine Corps, I'm very family oriented and team and, and all that sort of stuff. And yep. so I bounced around a lot, just trying to find a shop that's like accepting of me and, and, and vice versa and stuff. But, um, so I was with, I went to Kia. It was like at the end of 13, beginning of 14. Um, and then I left dealership altogether at the end of 19. So, um, was that five years, uh, yeah. five or six years. So, and then after I left there, I went to an independent shop. Um, loved it. I mean, 100%. I, I was like, I found my home, mm-hmm. loved it there for about six months. And then, um, the owner was an absentee owner. He'd come in maybe like once a week. He had a general manager that was just running it. He was he was towards retirement age, trying yep. to sell, and so he just had a general manager just running it. General manager was a younger lady. She started getting addicted to drugs, um, and that brought a lot of bad stuff into the shop to the point where, like me and another guy, on multiple occasions, would literally have to pick her up out of somebody's bay because she leaned up against a two post lift and slumped over and passed out. And we'd have to pick her up and Man, a lot of bad stuff. So I ended up leaving there after about eight months and I hated it. And I even told the owner, I was like, look, if she's gone with the drugs and everything, I'll come back in a heartbeat. Cause I, I, I loved it. It was, it was a shop for me. Mm-hmm. But then after I left there, I just kind of bounced around a little bit and it got to the point with my wife and I were like, Let's figure out something when like, you know, you got, you got to do something. And so that's whenever I took Jarhead on full time was COVID happened, shutdown happened a month after the shutdown. I was like, let's start a business. Right. (laughs) So you kind of, did you kind of walk away from the repair side with Jarhead? And it was just about, you know, kind of the, I don't, Brendan, I don't want to say that it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize what it is. Right. But it's, it's. You know, for what is what is what is Jarhead predominantly like? If you're to describe it, so tell us so about what Jarhead it is. originally. So Jarhead originally started out. My wife and I were goofing off. I was building a Diag cart, and you know, you had like Cody's Auto Diag and Super Mario, and mm-hmm. and I was just like, oh, I'm going to make my own name and and stuff. And so my wife and I were messing around, and she just wrote Jarhead Diagnostics on this thing that was going on in my roll cart. And it started from there. It was like literally just her, her writing the name down. And then I made a tool for myself and um, it wasn't like a, uh, I'm going to go sell a bunch of tools. It was like, I was just balling on a budget and I wanted a tool. So I made it posted on Facebook and then one sold and two sold. And then I blinked my eyes and it was like, I would come home from working all day and then I'd work till midnight building tools for people to sell. And that tool was it started out as a pulse sensor. Um, and then I, I just added a lot more to it, like different tooling and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and then they got to the point, like at the time I was making them out of like just over the counter products and stuff, just putting it together. Um, and 
it got to the point where like I didn't have time to do all that and my wife and I were talking we're like all right well let's try and 3d print one and we'll just see if that works you know we didn't even know at the time because I mean everybody was like you know 3d printers have been out for a while but in in the space of of jarhead diagnostics and and that type of tooling at the time nobody was really 3d printing tools and so we got a 3d printer we printed one it worked worked out really well and so then that was end of 2019 when that happened so that was maybe december is when we first started printing um and then we released the the first 3d printed products um january 1st and uh and i mean it, it blew up from there very cool same yeah. thing i was like I was like working all night or working all day in a shop as a tech coming home and doing that stuff till midnight, 1am. And whenever I left the, um, the independent shop that I was at, I went to a triple a, uh, repair shop. I liked it there. I was getting paid really good money, but come back to management. The, the manager wasn't feeding me. Like he only wanted me to do diag, which I'm fine Mm -hmm. with, but, Upper management was seeing that I was only flagging 20 hours a week because 90% of my stuff was diag. And, and so upper management started approaching me like, Hey, you know, what, what's up with your hours? And I'd be like, well, you know, my manager's only given me X, Y, Z. And they're like, and they put and the, the both managers put it back on me. It's like, you know, no, it's, it's your fault. And then we kind of went back and forth, back and forth. And then, they wanted me to do a free diag on a car where I was already not making a lot of money. And this was during the COVID shutdown. They took away, I was, I was on a 40 hour guarantee. Um, but when COVID happened, they took away everybody's guarantees, which was completely stupid. And so they took away my 40 hour guarantee. They wanted me to do a free diag. And I was like, am I going to get paid for this? They're like, only if you find out what's wrong with the car, I was like, then I'm not touching it. Like yeah. it, it was, it was to the point where I was only turning like 20 hours a week. I was like, I'm not touching it. If I would much rather sit here and twiddle my thumbs than work on this car for free. Like it drives it was, me I was crazy. That point I was, it drives me nuts that everybody thinks that when they're handing at work or dispatching or whatever one you call it, management, that they think that everybody has an equal opportunity, right? You and I know that's not the case, right? It's otherwise the, this, that very statement, would mean that you'd be able to sell the same work order to the same customer every day, right? It wouldn't matter if you use same opportunity. So no, you don't all have the same opportunity. And that's what I got labeled a lot too, is like, well, you only fixed the car. You didn't sell, you know, the other work that needed to be done on it. They forget that oftentimes that when that car is brought to you, it's a, it's a do or die for that car, right? If the customer can't get that issue resolved, they're not fixing their brakes. They're not fixing their struts. You know, if they've already, we know what it's like. If they've already thrown a bunch of money at it somewhere else and it's not resolved, they don't have the budget to do all the other maintenance repairs that they would, you know, a, a shop would tell you you should be selling until they know, right? And then that's the thing. If you build them properly for for the Diag and the tech's expertise, there's not a whole lot of money left over to fix the, you know, tie rod end that's loose or something like that i just that that part drove me nuts too because it's it goes back to like we were talking the better you become the less hours you produce and uh and that was that was that it was it, we 
it was me and the store owner or the store manager, the one that was dispatching all the work and stuff there at that AAA. Just if you can't figure out this, we're not paying you diag. And I was like, then I'm not touching it because it was a noise concern. I already test drove it four times. I had a service advisor ride with me. We couldn't even duplicate the noise. And he wanted me to just start taking apart brakes and all this other stuff to find the noise. I was like, unless I'm getting paid, I'm not going to do it. So we argued back and forth, back and forth. And so he got the regional manager to to come in and talk to me. And the regional manager's like, you work for AAA, not Brandon Dills Automotive. And I was like, well, let's see how this works. And I was like, see ya. And quit that day and took Jarhead Diagnostics full time the very next day and started mobile diagnostics and programming as well. So Good for you, man. Good for you. It's, you know... That's the kind of, those are the kind of, you know, examples and stories that make me really proud to be in this industry, right? Because I, I think that and people have known me a long time, know that I've, I've said for years, we need to put our foot down and, and stand up for what we're, what we believe in and what we're worth. And, uh, stories like that make me always just smile because that's, you know, they can't, if everybody does it, if everybody stood up tomorrow and said, no. It's not happening that way anymore. Today's a new day. We all start different. We could have turned this mother around and, you know, years ago, but it's, it's that, it's that dog eat dog attitude that goes back to it. It's like, Oh, all of a sudden they'll find that, you know, weak moral guy over in the corner and they'd be like, we've got a mutiny on our hands here. Like, uh, how do you want some extra work? And they're like, he's like, Oh yeah, for sure. Right. And he'll turn his back on everybody. So <sighs> there used to be a thing around here called parking lot justice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know that was the, the old say we used to take guys like you out back and you know beat you with a fucking flashlight and a phone book but Wait, i mean it, that's you know in the marine corps we we called it tree line we take you to the tree line and beat yeah. the shit out of you in the tree line so and i'm not trying to say that we should have like you know crazy teamster type you know uh organizations but i mean it, it, it there's always one tech that ruins making change in a shop there's always one and it, it goes back to that you know incentivized hey right we'll look after you really good if mm-hmm. you just don't mind okay so so you started with the mobile the programming the diag and then burning the candle at both ends by the sounds of it right with the the jar head and then the the well i don't mean to say the jar head i mean like the the accessories and the tooling and then still going yeah. out and Diag and repair on cars, mobile. Yeah, it's, it's no repairs, just diag and programming. Um, started getting to a little bit of locksmith, but I didn't hit that like super heavy. <clears throat> and I did that for about a year and a half, give or take a little bit. And I mean, I had a pretty good clientele built up. The tooling got to the point where I I needed to hire an employee just to take care of the tooling. Wow. But I didn't really focus. We we put a, a small building out at my house and I completely transformed it into like a good workspace. It was climate control, nice area, but no bathroom. So they would have to go in my house, to use the bathroom and all that sort of stuff. So we leased a very small warehouse. Um, and I, and my vision for that warehouse was to do all the tooling and the, and, and all that sort of stuff. And then every once in a while you'd get those like, the cars that are just whooping your ass and sometimes you can't do it 
mobile because it would be, you know, yeah. it's a several hour endeavor. And so I was like, you know, I'll just have whenever that that's happening, I'll just have the shops bring them to me. It just, and I can mess with them there. And I, let's see, I leased that. I moved into that warehouse in July of 2021. Um, and within three months I started having the clients realize that their cars were getting brought to me more and more. So then I just started having clients just show up for me to do everything to their car. And so that's kind of where small town yeah. started was because it, it, and the shop wasn't even meant to be a shop. It was more or less just for the tooling and for me to park my mobile van. And if I needed to some downtime to, to figure out a vehicle or whatever, mm -hmm. but one thing led to another and, and the, the shop started coming about. I was still pretty heavy immobile and I didn't want, I guess, animosity, um, from shops being like, wait, you're taking it where? Yeah. They don't. So want that's where, yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I changed the name completely for the shop to small town automotive technologies was just so that way, if a customer was to come to me and then they went back to a shop that I'm servicing mobile, I didn't want them to be like, you took it to jarhead without me type thing. Mm -hmm. So that's where the shop started and kind of same thing with, with one, with the way jarhead and the tooling went, there's just one thing led to another and it was kind of more work than I could justify doing anything else. And so, well, maybe February of 2022, I just, I stopped all mobile unless it was for a quick programming at a very local shop. It was, we, we just stopped all mobile and now it's just the shop as far as repairs go and stuff. Yeah. We still, I still, uh, work with a lot of the shops I was working with before, but they just bring the vehicles to me. If they yeah. need me to diag it or, or program it or whatever, they bring it to me. Unless it's an easy program and, and I'm only out of my shop for like 30 or 40 minutes, it they, it all comes to me now. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that, did you have, like how, because I've always wondered about that, right? When when you see the guys and they make that step where they go from being a mobile to be the, to kind of a brick and mortar, do you got, do you, do you get a lot of kickback from, from your people? Like, do they feel like they've been, you've, you know. Oh, what's the word I'm thinking of that you, trade. you you poached their customers or a couple of shops? Yes. Some of them didn't really care because there's some of them that kind of have my thought process of if you stand out in front of your shop and you just watch the cars drive by, you cannot service no matter what you mm -hmm. try and do. You cannot service all those vehicles. So some of them realized that and would actually send me customers at the time, like whenever I was, whenever I was like, okay, we're going to do the shop. I didn't care what cars came in. Now I'm kind of a little bit more picky on what we get. But at the time it was like, yeah, if, if they want to send me a shitty car, just, just, you know, I'll take it. And so we, we got some where they didn't really care so much, but then I had some where they just completely, you know, cut ties with me, yeah. which, you know, I understand it's, it's a business and, and they made their business choice, just like I made my business mm -hmm. choice. But I'm still, if they were to call me, it doesn't matter what shop, if they were to call me with questions or needing advice or to go over there and help them, 
I'll I'll go over and, and assist anybody. I'm I'm still like that, and um, so it. I had some yes, and then I had some that didn't really mind. So yeah, do you think we've kind of heard that argument before? Or I don't know if it's an argument so much as a, an opinion. Do you think that the mobile people are are kind of um, holding up the shops that maybe should have, you know, fallen onto the wayside and, and not survive the change? Do you think that one hundred percent? Yeah, one hundred percent. There was. There was several shops. Well, I won't say several. Um, I serviced probably about thirty to forty shops, um, unless. But, but it wasn't like in every single day I was at all thirty or forty. Mm-hmm. But total, it was probably thirty to forty shops, and I had two or three that if a car came in with a check engine light, they would just automatically sell the testing and have me go in and do the testing for it. It could be the simplest thing, but they didn't even want to touch it. It was like, oh, the check engine light's on. I can't I can't do that. So it was I would just go in and do it. So yeah, there was plenty of shops that are held up by some of them. So mm-hmm. And you you think that we're do you think we're hurting the industry by doing that? By or do you think it's just a necessary service that has to be out there? Like and we're never gonna because that's I think that's what I I see is that the, the consumer is just not educated enough the difference, right? And I don't think that they think a garage is a garage is a garage. And I think that no matter what, we're always going to need, you know, specialized people mm-hmm. that either go there and do it or it gets subletted and comes off site and it gets done. Because I just think that there's, especially now with everything becoming so specialized and, and whatnot, you know, the customer just wants it fixed. And they just expect to pay. And I don't, I don't fault the guys that are mobile that are going to someplace and helping a shop with a, with a problem vehicle at all. I mean, there's a, there's a need for it. You know, they have a right Mm -hmm. to feed their family. They have a right to earn a living. There's, you know, do I like it? (laughs) Does it make me kind of shake my head when you hear about, well, they showed up and there was a fuse was missing, you know, stuff like that. Like it makes you wonder like, okay, how much more training and standardization do we need in the industry before that doesn't happen? But I mean, you know, is there ever, I couldn't even tell you how many invoices um, I filled out saying that I repaired um, an open in a circuit Mm. and that was literally putting a fuse back in or whatever. And, and it kind of sucks in an aspect of I'm there to do my job. And so you don't necessarily want to give them too much information Mm -hmm. because in one hand, you're trying to raise the industry, but in the other hand, I have my family to feed too. So you don't try and say, I did X, Y, Z, make sure you check X, Y, Z, because the next thing you know, I would have been out of business because I would have helped everybody take take over my job. Yeah. But I think that there's always going to be a need for a mobile person. And the reason I say that is you could have an excellent shop that has top tier technicians in it from A to Z and they can do anything, but there's always going to be that problem car where you need somebody else's point of view to just come in because you could have racked your brain over that car for three weeks and they just come in and be like, well, let's check X, Y, Z. And you're like, holy shit, I didn't even think about checking that. 
it, it still happens in my shop with me, right? We always, we just, and we're all pretty good. We don't look at it and like nobody gets upset or it's just, just a, a new, a new fresh outlook, a new set of eyes on it, right? It's sometimes it's all it takes. And I mean, you know, especially when you're chasing intermittents or stuff like that, right? Or I suck at, at sound diagnostic because I'm losing a lot of my hearing and, you know, it's, it's one of them things where <laughs> I always kind of had that attitude. It's just like, well, there's nothing loose. There's nothing falling off. The thing is safe. Just drive it. Right. And, and that's not the attitude that when the customer is concerned that they want to hear. So it's, that is a weak point for me is, is that, and it's mostly an attitude thing and we don't have a set of chassis here. So it's like, you know, it, it makes it tough and, uh, you know, the shop needs to buy a set. But, you know, I'm not going to buy a set. I, I bought enough tooling for, you know, the whole shop to use that I'm going to draw my line on the sand on a set of chassis here. So we don't get a ton of it, but it is, it is frustrating for me because I don't hear a lot of the things that the customers hear. I'm, I got frequency irregularities in what I hear anymore. So it's, it's tough sometimes, you know. Yeah. Which, you know, the aspect of the shop should supply. Like the way I run my shop, I've got two techs and the way I run it is I don't require them to have anything specialized. At at Right now, we're not big enough to where I can say, yeah, I'll buy all your hand tools. So I require them just to have your basic stuff to just turn wrenches, um, any specialized tools, any diagnostic equipment. I don't require any of that. And, and the reason I don't is because that's not, I, I feel like that's, the owner's responsibility is to cover all that because why the hell does a technician need to spend $200 on a timing set to time a GM motor or whatever, Mm -hmm. and they're going to do it once every two years. Why would they need to pay that? That's, that should be on me. Um, so that's, that's how I run mine. You know, I have chassis years, but I just bought the Amazon ones because I cheaped out, but, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. That's, I think, how it should be. You know, it, some guys are tool addicts. I think a large percentage of your customer base maybe, you know, are, are tool addicts, right? They like what mm-hmm. you guys create and what they and what you build. And I think that that's, you know, we need that. But it, I'm, you know, I, I want to spend less on tooling every year now at this point in my career, not more. So it's... uh yeah, and my 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 lead tech, whenever he started, he had his own Zeus. And whenever it came time for update, he was contemplating trading on the Zeus Plus or whatever. And so him and I, we kind of sat down and we had a discussion on what's the best option for the shop. And whenever we figured out what the best option for the shop was, I countered him with, if you want to do XYZ, that's fine, but I'm going to cover that. So you don't need to be out of pocket any extra money. I know it's your tool and I know that tomorrow I could do this and then tomorrow you quit and I'm out that money, but that's, you know, it is what it is. So yes, he has his own Zeus, but a lot of the, the, the burden of it is on me and not on him financially for it. So, and you know, he was very grateful for it, but kind of back to the same thing it's not his responsibility i am charging xyz for a, a testing 
he's not getting paid X, Y, Z because we're hourly here. So he, whether he does the testing or not, he's still getting mm-hmm. paid the same. Whereas I'm charging appropriately for my testing. So it shouldn't be on him to, to buy the testing equipment. So, so are you guys straight hourly or do you have a hybrid plan or like no, you see, I, I don't think you necessarily are a proponent of flat rate by itself, by the sounds of it after talking to you for you know the last little bit now. What yeah, do you think? I mean, we're, we're hourly only right now, mainly because we're the shop's coming up on two years old because we started towards the end of, of 2021. And mm-hmm. so we're coming up on two years old, but it, it's still a fairly new shop. And yeah. so we'll have days where we don't really have a high car count or whatever. And so I know for me, if I was flat rate at a shop that I'm, that I have right now, I'd be kind of pissed off because there'd be some weeks where I'm not turning really good hours. Yeah. And so we're hourly only right now as things pick up and we get a little bit more going on and and that sort of stuff. I plan on doing some sort of hybrid, not, Flat rate. I I still feel like everybody needs to always go home with a living wage at the end of the day, and mm-hmm. if they shouldn't have to sacrifice if I didn't do my marketing properly, or or what have you. So, but eventually I want to try and add in some sort of bonus structure of some sort. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet, but just to kind of make them um, have a little bit more skin in the game to want to produce more if that makes sense oh it totally makes sense uh, you know it's it's one of those things that when i started to hang around you know in the changing the industry in nasog when i was in there i'm i'm starting to see you know um more examples of how it can work because i i used to say you know i'll and i still say it i i don't think i could trust an independent shop to run efficiently enough and run from a culture standpoint well enough that I would work flat rate in one. I think that there was, there's too many times where they would want to discount to sell jobs. And then, you know, I don't get paid when you discount, you know, I get paid a little bit, but I don't maybe get paid what I'm supposed to get. And as I see more and more owners talk about it and they show you that how it works. Yeah, it, it can work. But I think that most, if I was going to go start a shop tomorrow, I would start them just on hourly. And, and and work up just like you're doing to where we're getting more car count. You know, we can kind of uh, qualify our customers a little better, you know, charge a really good rate, you know, pay a really good rate to our, to our staff and then see them have some kind of incentivized bonus. But, you know, it's, we know up here, especially how much it's seasonal up here that you know, like in January, you're not making any money because nobody has any money after Christmas. So, you know, you're going to make money in October and November and December for snow tire season. And then January, when everybody's credit card is maxed out from Christmas, you're going to starve January, February. March is going to pick up again when the first early birds come in to get their snow tires taken back off and you can get a little bit of upsell. But you know, you're, you've got that dry run between that and AC season, and then that's it. You know, you, you're you're waiting again until snow tire season happens in the fall. When people send their kids off to, you know, university, college, whatever, 
there's no money in September to make none. You know, <laughs> the money gets made when they wind up somewhere with mom and dad's car and it breaks down. But in terms of them coming in and going, oh, like I, I you know, and selling them a $2,000 worth of preventative maintenance. No, they don't have the money for that. So it's, uh, I would, yeah. I'd be, I'd be hourly to start tomorrow. I mean, I'm hourly with the way I'm paid now. No incentivized, nothing. I'm just hourly. I show up, I fix the stuff that needs to be fixed and I get paid and that's it. And that's, I work but, way. Well, I, so whenever I first, um, started the shop, um, I was doing pretty much everything. Um, I had my brother helping me up front a little bit, but I'd say 90% of everything just rested on my shoulders. And so I hired a tech, um, and then I actually, and, and then I ended up hiring two techs. They're both hourly. And I learned this the hard way is you have to watch out who you hire to work hourly because they will 100% take advantage of it because mm-hmm. for them, um, neither one of them wanted strictly hourly, but they wanted a, um, like a guarantee. And so I was fine with that because either way I'm paying the money out. Right. So either way guarantee or hourly don't matter, but they 100% like lived off of the guarantee two hour lunches, um, coming in late every day, wanting to leave early. And, and so the the production was horrible to the point, like I didn't catch it soon enough because I was still very new at the, the ownership Mm-hmm. role of a shop and stuff so i didn't catch it soon enough to the point where the doors almost got shut because i didn't catch it fast enough yeah and especially being new my you know my capital and bankroll and stuff it wasn't a whole lot like i was on a shoestring budget and so yeah that's that's one thing is is you have to make sure that you have the um the the correct people that's wanting to do it that is willing to produce on hourly mm-hmm. so yeah and it, it it's it's a slippery slope there right because i mean it, it so much of it can come down to if you just don't have the work for you know two days of the week it can set your whole pace where you never really get into that overdrive type state right where you're like oh all of a sudden we got all this work and let's pump it out right you kind of had two days where you know, a lot of not, you know, slow. And then it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to kick back in. Whereas you talk to the dealer guys and it's like, man, they can go from one to 10, you know, with a flick of a switch, just because if that works there, then you're just humping. But the, the hourly guys, like, you know, I've seen both sides and it's, I get to it when I get to it, you know, it's no big deal. Yeah. Like, my, my, my tech that I have now, he's, he's very um steady. Like, his performance is, is I can count on it, but there's been times where it's been like that, where, cause I'm still riding that roll that new business roller coaster mm-hmm. and where we were like twiddling our thumbs for the first, like uh, it was probably about three weeks ago or four weeks ago. We literally twiddled our thumbs for Monday and Tuesday. We, we were caught up on all of our work and there was absolutely nothing for us to do. I'm sitting there getting nervous. It's like, Oh shit. Like, how am I going to do payroll this week? Just because it was, you know, we had nothing coming in and, uh, and then at towards the Wednesday, maybe around 11 o'clock Wednesday, we got some cars coming in and it was that, that thing that you just said, it was, he's like, man, I've just been relaxing all week. How am I, like, I'm trying to get kicked back into overdrive and, 
So it took a lot of pushing. It's like, look, we've got to like, you've got to get these cars done. Like there's no questions about it. We're getting these cars done. So. Yeah. But I mean, hats off to you. Cause like when Monday and Tuesday, when it's not twiddling your thumbs, you didn't send them home. I mean, I, I, even in straight time shops that I've worked at where in January, you know, you'd, you'd go out and shovel the snow out of the parking lot. And I mean, it was a big parking lot, but you'd go out there and shovel for five hours. Cause I mean, they're paying you pretty good wage to shovel. And, uh, but you'd come in and then the next day it's like, oh, it's another day with nothing on the appointments. Who wants to go home? And, uh, I always found for me, it was really hard to be there and, uh, not have anything to do. So I was, I nominated myself a lot to, to go home. And in the summertime, like if I can get away and it's like, you know, cause I'm pretty lucky. I'm Lake Ontario is two blocks from the house <laughs> and there's a lot of lakes. So it's like, and I love to fish. So it's like, if I can, you know, if it's a nice, beautiful day and it's, there's not a whole lot on the schedule and they're like, do you want to go? I'm like, do I? Heck yeah. I want to go like, get out of my way. Let fire that Jeep up. So, I mean, I, I, I commend you guys that don't send your guys home because it's, you know, there's that, there's that argument. Well, listen, you know, make them do this and make them paint the walls and make them pressure wash, you know, the bathroom and all that. And that's all jobs that have to get done. And yes, if they want to do them, they should. But I can remember way early in my career, we had like a week. I was working at a truck shop and I was on night shift and we spent four nights pulling everything away from the walls, pressure washing the walls and then painting them. And I mean, it was like, it didn't look any different when it was done than when we'd started, you know, it was just, but we did it and it was something that the boss wanted done and we got it done. That was tough. But I mean, at the same time, they're paying me very good to paint a wall. So, you know, it was, I appreciate now, I didn't always understand it, but I appreciate it when they give me something to do to keep me working. So, yeah, I mean, so like whenever a few weeks ago, whatever, whenever that, that those couple days were, don't get me wrong. Like he wasn't just standing there playing on his phone. We, I made sure the shop got cleaned up and stuff, but I'm also very big on training and, and, and that sort of stuff. So we pulled in a couple of vehicles that we had sitting cause like we were waiting on parts on a couple of vehicles that we just couldn't get in and, and that sort of stuff. So we pulled those in just to play with the oscilloscope and, and get, him some more hands-on with that stuff to make him more comfortable with it so we did training just to make sure that there was stuff to do so and you know what honestly brendan that is such a way better way to utilize that slack time than to just to make the work right because i mean it's you know we always talk about there's <laughs> you know, there's never enough time for training or there's never enough there's never enough money for training you're already paying the guys they're already there you know um, not every shop's going to have a Brendan that's got that wealth of, you know, expertise and, and knowledge on how to train them on that kind of stuff. Right. Some guys work with a boss that wouldn't be able to hook us oscilloscope up. But I mean, I think that is so cool that, you know, shops will do that and see the value in it. Right. It's, it's an investment in time. Like you might as well, it's way cheaper still to pay them how many hours for Brendan to pull a car in and go through an ignition trace than it is to, pack them up, shut the shop down, send them to a course, you know, and pay them. You might as well do it while you've got them there, right? Like, fantastic. Love that. So more people need to to think about that, right? So, 
Yeah, I mean, especially like how you said it. If if you're just sitting there twiddling your thumbs, idle hands become idle minds, and sometimes mm-hmm. idle minds aren't necessarily the best. And so, if you can keep them, keep people engaged with training or whatever, it's it's going to be better all around for you. So yeah, that's and not not only that is is in my opinion, it was just simple stuff that we were testing, but now it's less likely that I have to go out there and do this sort of testing. So now I can stay back and do more ownership stuff. If that makes sense. No, totally does. Totally does. I mean, that's, that's what it's about, right? It's to you. It seems like it's something that's rudimentary. You've done it a thousand times, right? You know, this is, this is how you do a relative compression test. This is what it's supposed to look like, you know, all that kind of stuff for them. They don't, you know, they're certainly probably not as proficient with it for some of them. Maybe it's their first time that they see that or they've seen it in video and all of a sudden to see it in real life, you know, on a, on a, on a real car light bulb moment, right? Like, you know, that's when you, when you mention idle hands, that's why for me, when there is no work and nobody's, you know, got really a contingency plan for me, um, it's always, I learned very on it's best for my mental health to just get out. Just, uh, you know, just write the day off, go fish, go, you know, go do whatever. Cause it, it's way better than, cause you know what it's like at the dealership when it's slow, everybody kind of parks at one buddy's toolbox and, you know, drinks coffee that, you know, and starts to grumble. And, um, you know, you can get in that same headspace even when there's nobody else to grumble too. And it's still a bad spot to be. And I, you know, it's. <laughs> they call me jaded, but I mean, really, it's a situation of, I just, you know, I had to learn a long time ago that the limits that I put on what I can do is, is all in my own head. You know, nobody's ever mm-hmm. had people held me back, not really held me back, but they've put up more obstacles than they ever really had a right to. But it's, you know, when I decided that, you know, it was over for me, I decided it was over long before it was ever over. You know what I mean? Because it was just like I, I yeah. checked out. You know, I became disgruntled instead of, you know, modeled employee. And then it's just a matter of time at that point. And that's, you know, yeah. I appreciate more people that recognize that and, and cut it off, you know. So. Which, like to your point on that one, and this one might cause a stir fire in people. What's your thoughts on a two weeks notice? Of of termination or like me giving one? <laughs> you giving one. So I have given or, them or, or working one or working one. I guess so you would say. it's that's a that's a funny thing when that topic came up, right? Because it's like here's how I've seen it in the couple times that I've done it is that you give that, but then they normally you don't last the two weeks because either they start to well, I can't, I can't really give him that big job because like he could be gone or he might sabotage it. And this is not me personally, but this is, you know, things I've heard or they start to feed you the absolute, the, the, they're just trying to make you quit. Right. Cause that's the thing right up here, you know, termination gets severance, you know, quitting. So yes, you've given your two weeks notice. You try to work it through. But normally by the time then it's, and I I worked at one place and it was like, as soon as I gave my two weeks, the acting foreman, he just came to work every day with like, pretty much, I think he wanted a fist fight. 
and he would just try to instigate whatever he could. And little, you know, they all walk around. It's 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 a one thing to joke, but it's another to start taking pot shots at people, right? Or, you know, and I've I've seen some guys in this industry when they give their notice. The one thing I tell them is don't tell them where you're going. Now in small towns, the word gets out, right? The tool guy comes in and he says, "Hey, congratulations! I heard you're going over here." Blah blah blah. Or you know, we'll have your box. Well, then immediately I have seen, not personally, but I have seen other people that I've talked to that immediately that shop that you're leaving tries to sabotage that tech where they're going. And like, and I get it, you know, it's, it's a, there's a shortage and, you know, we're, we're all fighting for talent, but to do that, there is not much more of a dick move you can do in this industry than that. Like, you know, I don't think. I think it's the professional thing as an employee to do is to give your two weeks and work them through. But I haven't seen too many guys finish their two weeks out. I, I didn't. I was like, I've always, I tend to give them the notice on either the Friday or the Monday morning because I normally have to think about it or by the Friday I'm fed up. And they go, okay, so you work 10 more days. Normally by that second week, by Tuesday or Wednesday, they're like, you know, you don't need to come in the next two days, you know, and it's, and I had get the last one I quit. I had three weeks left of my two weeks and, uh, it was 30 below. I was on a service call for a tractor trailer that had pulled away, left the glad hands hooked up to the trailer, ripped the airline fittings off. Instead of having it towed to the shop, they wanted that fixed in the yard Everything that I touched was so cold and so broken. It just kept cracking and breaking and fall apart. And I called the night manager for, cause we were, I was on night shift and uh, I said, I've got three days left. I quit effectively now. <laughs> and I came back, I parked the service truck and uh, I changed into my street clothes and I went home. And the next day I had my toolbox towed out of there. Cause it was, it was, uh, I wasn't supposed to be doing that kind of service call work and it was cold and the thing should have been towed, but they're like, well, we can do the service call cheaper than if we tow it over to you guys. And it, that was just like, you know what? I've got limits. I don't mind working on the side of the road. I've done lots of service calls in minus 30. I've, you know, done all kinds of stuff, but it was just that night is like, no, you know what? I know what you guys are doing and you're trying to make me and congratulations. You win. I'm done. And it was only two more days. It didn't matter. Right. And, you know, it's what I take pleasure in is when you see, when you leave a facility, and how do I say this the right way? And you see them struggle with you gone. You know what I mean? Like it's whether it's in the, in the, in the text that you leave behind, if they're friendships, if they call you and they, and they, they need help or, and I I'd never not help, but I take pride's not the right word, but it kind of is. It makes me feel better that I made the right decision because, you know, I'm showing them that, yeah, okay, I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but, you know, somebody else is valuing me and I've left a hole. And I think that that's what, you know, whether you give them any notice at all, take pride in that. Take pride in the fact that, you know, if you are the worker bee, and they suffer with you gone or there's a lot, whatever suffers, not the right word. But if you, if they struggle a little bit more because you're gone, maybe that's how they learn to appreciate 
the next guy that comes in and takes your spot. I think that that's all we can really do. And that's, that's why I've always felt that you got to stand up for yourself in this industry. You really do. I mean, anytime, any job I ever left, the next job was a better job for me. It's the way I've always seen it now. And even when I left the dealership way back when, when I left the dealer, three really good friends of mine that we all kind of did the same kind of diagonal electrical. They were not long after I left. They had, they had had enough and they left and they've all gone on to much better things. And, you know, I, did they ever say, Oh, well, Jeff's the reason, you know, he gave me the courage. No, they didn't say that. But if I inspired them to value themselves, to go find a better spot, then that's, that's, that's a big contribution. It really is. You know, you got to show people in this industry that you're willing to work. You got to show them that you're willing to learn and you have to show them that you're not as replaceable as we all were probably maybe 40, 50 years ago. We have to, and I hate the shortage for the technicians, for the businesses out there. I see them struggling. I hate it. It sucks. It really does. But I'm, I am an advocate for techs first. And, you know, if it's finally starting to shift the other way where some of us are really starting to be valued, we gotta, we've gotta, we've gotta take advantage of that while it's here, you know? So. Yeah. And and like for me, as far as like business sense, it's, what I do is probably not the best business sense whenever you look at it, but whenever I come from my career, how I was treated as a tech and everything and how I would have wanted to be treated as a tech, that's, mm-hmm. that's why I treat my guys the the way that I do is because I want them to know I want them here and I am super appreciative of them. They're not just a number. They're not just, you know, make me money. So that way I can go do X, Y, Z. It's, they're here because I really, truly appreciate everything they mm-hmm. do. So I spend more money on tools and, and X, Y, Z. And like this past Friday, we, we did steak, steak lunch for everybody. Like I grilled steaks for everybody. And it's yeah. like, it's just my way of trying to give back is like, look, I truly appreciate you guys. And how you say is like a lot of times you go to a shop and they don't treat you like that at all. And that's like, so the reason I was asking about the two weeks is because I'm kind of hit or miss on my thoughts on the two week notice. I, I mm-hmm. truly am because sometimes you turn in the two weeks notice and they will literally bend over backwards to do anything that they can to keep you yep. whether that's because they feel like they're going to be short staffed or because you were a, a good employee, but sometimes they'll bend over backwards, but then you get that flip side where it's, they want to try and do anything they can to make your life miserable for two weeks. And so if the, the times that I've turned in my notice, if I felt like it was going to be one of the ones where they just make my life miserable, I usually don't finish the notice. I will usually, if I get that feeling right away, that's, I'm just like, okay, I'm done. Like Mm -hmm. we don't need to work a notice. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I left the dealer in Ottawa, the dealer that I've been the longest time, when I walked in that morning and there was time cut from my time from my hours the day before, and I, when I out and asked it why, and he gave the the bullshit reason for why, I didn't tell him that was my last day. It was a Friday before a long weekend, and I it was so it was 
eight fifteen in the morning. I went out and shut my toolbox. I had two bays with Diag sitting there apart. I had three more booked in outside, and I went home. And I came back in Tuesday morning, and he kind of looked at me. And the two cars that were in the bay were down the shop, still trying to figure out what was wrong. And um, I'd had an offer, and uh, I had done the interview for the offer at the other dealership, but I hadn't agreed. And when he did that to me, I literally, as I was walking out the door at that dealer, I was calling the next dealer to say, I'm going to take that offer. And it turned out that that dealer, the job that I took, was not a wise move. It was a lot of promises that were not upheld, which is fine. I'm used to that. So that's the one time that I really didn't give the notice and didn't work anything after that. Because I, I, I felt I was justified in leaving. You were trying to – I look at it as theft, right? If I perform a service and you don't pay me for it, that's theft. That's theft of service. So I didn't feel like I had to be the professional at that point and give him notice. I came back on the Tuesday morning and I told him that was my final day and I would be in tomorrow to get my toolbox. And then I, you know, moved the toolbox and packed up my life in Ottawa, moved back home here to Kingston and, and life went on. And it was at that dealer that then started a, an effect of, People starting to be fed up because this was a relatively new manager and um, him and I, we could work together, but I, he'd, he'd been promoted from a foreman role to a manager role. And he all of a sudden had a, he became a really big hypocrite. And I was like, no, man, you, you and I are not going to jive, you know, and it wasn't wasn't like I was a prima donna or a princess. This is the thing that drives me nuts when you see some owners and they say, oh, they're just prima donnas. <sighs> OK, like, does that does that solve anything to, to say that? No, it doesn't. Right. There's already so many issues at hand by then when you decide that they're that and they've decided whatever they've decided about you. It's already over. The marriage is done. Like it's just time to, to move on. And yeah, this calling each other names or labeling this solving, not a darn thing, you know? So you just, you go to the resume file and you pull another one out and you hire somebody that you know nothing about and you get them back in and, and you just repeat the cycle. At some point in this industry, that's got to stop. And um, I think that, you know, with owners like yourself that get it, and have been through the druthers, I think we can start to shift that. What scares me, Brent, is when you talk about absentee owners, right? Because I see this trend coming along of, of, you know, we'll touch on this, of of they just have a, say, a, a coaching group or whatever, and they go, listen, you know, just make them work as cheap as possible, make them sell as much as possible, make everything incentivized, and... Don't be there. Let your people do what their job is, which I agree you should be. A micromanager is is a waste of effort. It doesn't do anything positive. But we have them where they say, oh, you know, like um, there's an older tech over there. Uh, he's got some, you know, body aches and pains and, sh- you know, sore shoulders, sore knees, sore backs, sore necks, sore hands, whatever. It's all there. Sore feet. And he's starting to slow down. Now, He's a really sharp guy. You know, we pay him a lot per hour and, you know, he's selling 
you know, he's, he's running 50, 45, you know, some weeks he only hit 35, but we laid him up heavy on Diag that week. And, but we've got a guy that, you know, uh, is 10 years younger. He's been working with him for a few years now and he's not, he's killing it. Like he can do everything that that tech does. Let's get rid of that old senior tech. That's what scares me. I'll be 48 this fall and I don't work in an incentivized plan, but I, every month <laughs> I heard a little more and I'm sure every year I get a little slower, right? It just, it, it, it's the way it goes. And that scares me in this industry. Cause I think what we saw kind of happen with um, the flat rate master is I think we're going to see that really happen a lot more in the very near future. If the coaching trends seem to go, uh, in that direction. And it's, uh, Dutch and I had a quick conversation yesterday and, uh, we'll, we'll pick it up on it at some point and discuss it. I think a lot of techs have to realize that, you know, it is dog eat dog and you have to plan for the, the lean times and you have to plan for when you're physically can't do it anymore or emotionally, you just can't go to work and, and keep fighting the battle, you have to have something to fall back on. And, you know, it's just, you know, I, I can't say it any more than that. You know, whatever it might be, you got to, whether it's a YouTube channel, whether it's, you know, like you making tooling, training, you know, you have to have something because, you know, there will always not, be. Then you're going to be that you're going to be that 50 year old guy delivering parts. And you're like, well, what'd you do for your career? I was a tech. And then now they're making $12 an hour delivering parts right? because that's all they can physically do anymore. Yep. Yeah. Like I, I joke that I tell people all the time when, when I'm done, I'm going to go work the parts counter at Canadian tire up here. And, and I joke cause I say there's about five of them around here. So I could work them from probably, you know, November when fishing gets too cold to go till May. By then, I'll probably have smart mouthed enough of the customers that they'll can me. <laughs> I'll have the summer off to go fishing, and then I'll go to another store in the fall again. <laughs> you know, because I'll be that guy that, like, when the customer comes in and wants to buy something, and you know it's not going to fix that, I'll be like, oh, I ain't going to need that. You know, because how can I not? Right? It's just how I'm wired. I'm that. That's my. That's my little fun way of of getting it through, you know, getting through the day. But I, I can tell you from, from experience, it is fun to do that. Yeah. <laughs> because, right? um, I, I, right before I got out of the Marine Corps, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I told you mm -hmm. earlier that, you know, I worked at AutoZone for a while. Well, I started AutoZone whenever I was in the Marine Corps, just so that way I could say, I like, I got a job and they can transfer me from this one to the one close to my house or whatever. Mm -hmm. So whenever I worked there in the Marine Corps, I didn't have to have the job. Yeah. It was just to set me up. So I just didn't care. It was like customer come in and they they want X, Y, Z. And I'm just like, I don't know about that one. And, you know, just I just didn't put up with it. It's it's very fun whenever you don't have to worry about that yeah. piece of employment. <laughs> so it's it's either going to be I'm going to be delivering parts or selling parts. Uh, that's what the way I think. Yeah. Right. I mean. The selling parts probably won't do well because I'll probably interject too much of my own opinion on what they want to buy or the first time that they buy something and then send it back to me, right? I'm going to just be like, oh, or you're that kind of, you know, 
shop, are you? But whereas if I just deliver them, I can kind of walk in and look at what they're doing, say hello, walk out. I'll probably be sent back over there another hour later with another part, you know, for a different car. And I could see myself doing that to just finish out. But it's it scares me. It really does. It really concerns me when I think of some of the the older techs I know that aren't owners. What is their contingency plan? You know, I mean, I worked at a dealership where there was two brothers. One had already he he'd already passed on, but when I worked there, he was sixty three years old, and his brother was two years older than him, and he'd worked there with him. And he died working right on the shop floor, had a heart attack. And, and, you know, he was, he was a tech that he could get the work done, but he, he couldn't lift hardly anything at all. You know, he could do, he could do an old Chrysler 2.2 head gasket, but he couldn't do the neon one because the timing was, he just didn't want to learn it. Stuff like that, right? He just, he was just a, a little bit more than a, than a, a lube and tire tech, you know? And I look at that and I go, man, I don't want to be that, right? I don't want to be that. And that's just so, I mean, I, I think about my contingency plan and it, and it changes. But I, I'm really worried for a lot of us in this industry right now. With what I saw with Michael, what he's gone through. And, and you know, and that's catching a whole lot of heat. And uh, hopefully he'll come on and he'll discuss it. If he doesn't, it's cool. But I see how some of the people immediately jump to a conclusion about that situation. And I go, man, like, did you, have you ever been in those shoes? Right. Have you ever been through what he's been through? Did you ever think that you were so vital to the business that you went to work in? Did you ever feel that comfortable enough to have it pulled away from you like that? There aren't many people that have. When I, any time I've ever been fired, I knew it was coming because I was, yeah. I was almost looking for it. Right. Um, I don't think he was looking for it. And, uh, I feel for the guy. I really do, you know, and him and I are well, not I mean, friends. This, so, but for him to be able to get the severance package, that, that tells you that it wasn't a, a lack of, or like he did something, yeah, you know, with malice and intent. Because, like, how you said, I guess, so in Canada, you get a severance if they fire you. So, I can speak for my state, at least, and I think it's pretty about the same all the way across, is if they fire you, they're usually you're not required to give a severance. Mm -hmm. So, for him to get a severance, that tells you that they fired him or let him go, but it wasn't because of just you messed up and yeah. a wheel fell off or whatever. So, yeah, I don't think it was that at all. And, and we may never know. And that's fine. It's not our business, right? It, it's, 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 it's between him and them, but it's just like, I, I'm sharing his story as much as I can, just as an educational thing, right? Because it's, it's mm -hmm. a very poignant thing that's happening. And I think it's, it's a cautionary tale that more people need to pay attention to. And I feel for the guy. I really do. You know, it is because I've been in those shoes. I've been at the dealer where they, they tell you that, oh, well, you're just not producing enough hours. And that's why we're going to let you go. Like you said, last hired, first fired. You can't produce hours if they won't give you cars. Right. So I've seen and you've seen it. They'll starve techs out. Right. They'll starve them out. And I'm sure that's a coaching 
you know, probably page four, section C on how to do it. Uh, but it isn't right. And, you know, I, I would like, I wish we could come together in this industry and come up with a plan where when we see guys that are starting to age out and, and, you know, we need them to fill a role, how we can fill that role with them, still keep them well paid and appreciated. And instead of just saying, well, you're, you know, you're a revenue generator and you fell below a certain line and, uh, you know, we've got a young person that's going to come in and going to take your spot. I think when, when you, when it was Matt Fonzo and I were talking, when you think about all that, especially in a dealership, when you think about the, what they know on your product line, like example, you and Hyundai Kia, you know, when you have a guy that can do a nine hour job in four hours, that's an, an, an amazing understanding of how that particular product goes together, that all the intricacies, the, the pattern failures, the shortcomings, the, you can drive it no in two seconds that sound exactly what it is. To just t- terminate that person because of an attitude problem? <sighs> I'm sorry, but let's, let's cut the crap. You're going to hire somebody that is going to go through years before, if ever, they get to that knowledge of that. And you want to fire them because they are slowing down or because they're starting to voice some concerns that there are legit concerns. Man, I can't get on board with that. I really can't. So to play devil's advocate with that, like how you're saying, you know, as an industry, figure out what to do with them at. And this is just a devil's advocate statement. It's, you know. How much of it should fall on the shoulders of that person, though? Like, in in an essence of, and like I said, I'm not saying that I'm going to be this person or whatever, but like, I'm just looking at it like, okay, I'm a shop owner. Mm -hmm. Why, why as a shop owner, do I need to, to figure out what my technician needs to do whenever, whenever we put them to pasture, so to speak, you know? That as a tech, like you as a technician, you should already kind of have in your mind, like, let's just, cause my, my, my lead tech, he's 40, I think he's like 49, but like he broke his foot whenever he was, you know, about four or five years ago, when you're older and you break a bone, it, it's not yeah. like it's bounced right back. So he limps into work every morning, usually about nine o'clock. He's, he's fully, you know, he's good. He just has to break it in in the mornings. But, um, you know, if he was to come to me and like, look, you know, I think that I would fit a good role to do this in the shop and it made sense, then that's, you know, the, the, him as a person is taking a hold of his future. Mm -hmm. Whereas instead of me trying to say, okay, what can I do with him? If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, you know, we all used to wax nostalgic about, oh, wouldn't it be great if, if the service advisors had actually been mechanics, right? And, and, and really knew the car well and, and could speak to the customer. But let's look at, let's be real. Let's look at a lot of us, right? Not from the appearance standpoint, but the way just generally the type of personality that does this. Customer relations is not <laughs> a rampant skill that we are you know, so great at it. Some of us just don't have it. We don't have those soft skills. It is really hard when you, when you do this for a living for so long to have those soft skills. I can speak to customers. I don't have a problem with it, but I cannot, when they start to come in with that preconceived notion or that attitude of entitlement or 
you're just going to rip me off anyway. And they come in there with that. I, I can't, I'm not big enough to be able to look past it and try to win them over. I'm just going to hold the door open for them and put my boot across their butt. That's the way I am. It's just, you know, to me, it's, you're disrespecting me. Every, every brother and sister I have in this industry, when you come in here with that noise. So I, I can't, I will not enable you by allowing you to treat me like that. It goes against my core as a human being, what I believe, you know, morals and ethics and, and standards and stuff. I can't, I can't do it. So for me, <laughs> that's not an option. So I'll probably do doing parts or something like that. But I think you make a good point. It's not on the shoulders of the shop owner to provide them with the same pay um, that they were always getting, even when the production slows down. That's not what I'm trying to say. I just, when I see different, you know, Dave and Lucas talk, they, they bring in. Hang on, I, I, I think you, I, I think you misunderstood. Not like, not an aspect of he's slowing down, so I need to cut his pay, but more of a, whenever he's done turning wrenches, is it on the the shoulders of the owner to be like, okay, I'm going to move him to here. Or would it be on the, the shoulders of the employee to be like, go to the employer, like, hey, I'm slowing down. I can't do this, but I think I would fit this good role in your business. Right. Can I move to that? Yeah. If that's that's my that's what I'm meaning, if that then, makes sense. Then yeah, I think it's I think it's on the owner I think it's on the the employee's responsibility, right? Because and there's where the pride and the ego thing kinda come in because it's like most guys can't admit that they're slowing down because they're slowing down. They want to say that, well, the job used to be this and pay that and it got cut and that's why I'm not producing as many hours. The reality is, is maybe they're taking more cigarette breaks or they're having to take more days off. They just want to take more days off. They're not, they're not there as many hours in the shop. There's why your production is down. So yes, you should, if you're mature professional should be able to go to them and say, listen, I'm starting to really feel this. Is there a spot that you can put me? You know, I feel like I could be an asset doing this. I feel like I could really benefit you guys by doing that. If there's nothing there though, right? If, if you, Brendan, decide, I don't, I, I just, I don't know what I could do with you, right? I don't have the payroll or I don't have this. I don't really, I kind of handle that responsibility. So it'd be, yes, it'd be nice to, but I couldn't pay you a full wage to do something that was only 30% of my time then that, that tech has to have a backup plan. You know, it, it's just a reality. And it's, I, going back to what I was trying to say, I have admiration huge for, for owners. Like I've seen Lucas and David both do it and they bring in a financial planner and they sit them down and they explain to these guys, this is what you're making. This is what you should be doing with your money. You need to be buying rental property. You need to be investing in this because this is not a job where, you know, you, you start it when you're 20 and you get your little cubicle and at 65 you you retire out and they give you a watch and a, and a and a pension and this isn't that so that that you always built through those t- traditional kind of jobs that's not a, that's not us so we have to take it upon ourselves to 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 look after what we're going to do for the the last half the last quarter of our life you know um it's not on the shop owners to to provide us with that second career, right? It's just the shop owner's responsibility is to pay us well so that we're not struggling to buy tools 
that the shop utilizes, that the tech bot, that's not, you know, making the tech donate X amount of hours every week out of their paycheck to sell work or sell a job or make a customer happy or have to do rework because the cheap part that they put on failed and you can't get, that's none of the tech's problem. It's not it. So the, the owners need to be operating at an absolutely stellar professional level, employing good people, taking care of those people. And then those people, you have to show up and be professional and you have to show up and do what it takes to advance yourself, you know, invest in yourself and have that contingency plan. You have all that. It's an easy, smooth transition. But, you know, when I see shops that are making techs buy tools or making techs do rework, you're not helping the current situation. So mm-hmm. and it sucks. You know, and you look at, you, you ask techs, what's your, what's your goal? Like whenever you're done working, what are you going to do? Like, what are you going to do for retirement? I'm going to sell my toolbox and my tools. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pennies on the dollar. Yeah, it's go, only- go look on Facebook Marketplace where you've got a snap-on toolbox that's full of tools, and they're wanting eight thousand or nine thousand dollars for it. Okay, so now you've just you've held yourself over for a couple of months. You know, now what are you going to do for the next twenty years? So, yeah. So let me ask yeah, you in, in closing, what's your what's your end? Well, I don't want to say end because what's where does where does Brandon and and you know small town technologies. Is that small town? Small town automotive technologies. Small automotive technologies. Where do you see yourself in ten years with that? And then, what's your what's your contingency plan? Like, do you do you want to see someone in the family continue it, or? So, I'm um I'm a firm believer in building a business that can be sold, and so and the and sold for a value, not like pennies on the dollar, but sold for value. So, so that's my, that's the, the contingency, I guess you could say is, is build it to where it can be sold. But my oldest daughter, she's about turned 16. She has just became infatuated with the auto industry over the past probably six to eight months Wow. to where, I mean, she's in the shop with me working. She enjoys pulling cars in and just doing all that. Um, she's been stuck to my hip whenever I'm up on the counter price and stuff and everything. So I think my, as of now, I'm hoping for my contingency is to be a absentee owner to her running the business is, wow. is what That's I'm fantastic. trying to gear it towards. Yeah. If it works out, it works out. If not, then like I said, the, the, the true contingency, I guess, would be just build it to where it's profitable enough to sell. So that way, you know, I, I can get some sort of retirement. Um, I need to start building up my retirement because I I don't have any right now. But um, that's within the next couple of years, I'm going to start dumping a lot into retirement and just getting the businesses to where if I'm just done with it, then they can be sold and continue on or have my children take it over. So if and she's then I'll just 16, I'll do it. Yeah. Oh, good. If Go she's 16, you have what, maybe 10 years? She'd be about 26. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, mid twenties. I I figure she's kind of already insinuated. So her 
mom and me, we separated um, whenever she was three and a half. And so she's lived with me primarily since she was four. Um, mm-hmm. She goes to her mom's every other weekend. And um, her mom lives about an hour and a half away. But she's kind of already insinuated that whenever she graduates high school, like this is her plans is, is now she wants to kind of do this with me. Um, so at, you know, early to mid 20s, she could very well be, you know, the general manager of the business. So well, dude, that's and awesome. if she doesn't want to. If she doesn't want to do the shop side, then, you know, we've got Jarhead, like with the tooling, because to be honest with you, Jarhead right now is grossing almost as much as the shop is. Wow. And and so that, you know, she could step into that because even if she's like, well, I don't want to do automotive, you know, mm-hmm. from the, the social media and just the, the everything else that goes into it, you know, she could step in and take over that one. And then I've got my youngest daughter, you know, every, every parent has that dream, you know, their parents take over or their kids take over everything. So if I've got my other daughter that wants to take over Jarhead and she takes over the shop, then, you know, I'd be happy with that. Good deal, man. And then I'll do exactly what they do to live to me and I'll just live off of them. (laughs) Exactly. Right. That's your retirement plan. Just build it. it. I mean, for the. For the first 18 years, I lived off of them. So for my last 18 years, I'll just live. Yeah, just build a big shed out in the backyard, get one from Home Depot, and you know we're gonna put that out there. And <laughs> yeah, oh, Brandon, I appreciate it, man. It's been—I mean, I've been wanting to do this. You and I never really had a chance to have a good long conversation, and um, this podcast has been has been awesome uh, to to get some of that happening. I mean, I, I I met you at AST, and I didn't really get a chance to to talk to you for very long, and it was the first time I didn't realize what jarhead was right in terms mm-hmm. of the tooling i just was like that was the first time i'd seen a 3d printer up close was was at ast with you guys there at the, at, so i mean you uh, you have my respect because you know you certainly have not taken, taken the easy route and um you know I, I i admire a person that you know takes advantage of every minute of the day and you do that and i think that is just absolutely what we need more of and um you know, we need more guys like you uh, and, and girls. We need more guys like you that have been through it. You know, we talk all the time about, oh, well, you know, what we don't need is more techs becoming shop owners. But what we need is is the right time of t- type of techs becoming shop owners. And um, you're one of them, man. And I'm 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 proud to call you, and I'm proud to have you here. And uh, 